We also just got to know a lot of the folks working on Ethereum, and they're just some of the brightest people in the space. They really think through the details, really clicked with the Optimism team. And, and the one thing I think that I really liked that they were doing was that they're focusing on the foundations. Um, a lot of teams were focusing on something very specific, like, you know, Arbitrum is about its fraud proofs. Um, you know, Polygon ZK is really about their ZK. Optimism was about creating a, a, a somewhat appropriately modularized platform. We felt we could play in that world kind of as a peer, not really as kind of like a second-tier customer. I think Optimism, um, despite you know maybe being a little bit behind on the fraud-proof side, um, has an architecture which we believe will actually leapfrog um, some of these other chains. I think there'll be places for other blockchains. I'm not a Ethereum maxi by any means. Um, I admire a lot of the work going on in the sort of the second, third-gen blockchains, I guess. You know, the Aptoses, the Solanas, the Suites. And so on, and now some of the hyper-optimized DVMs, I and mean, that stuff's super cool too. Roberto, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, as we were talking earlier, I'm just really appreciative of you and what the Coinbase team have ultimately done for the entire industry, not only with Base, but pushing for crypto and crypto adoption. It's truly been amazing to watch as an outsider for how much the team has done to push uh, forward uh, the entire industry on the le legal front or even from setting up the exchange to allowing people to interact with crypto. So just wanted to start off the podcast and say thank you to you and the team for what you've done. Yeah, well, I've, first of all, thanks for having me. I've, uh, I've been been eager to talk about BASE uh, in a podcast for some time. And so this is actually my first podcast that I do that I do get to do that. Um, but yeah, stand with crypto, right? I think... Um, our, uh, our our leadership team has really been um, adamant about standing up for the industry, um, and you know more than just you know because of a bottom line thing, because they, they really believe in the mission and the principles behind it, uh, and so that's been inspiring for me to see. I can't say that I'm the one that's driving that personally, but I'm totally on board um, for them, you know, to to try and uh, see that we have avenues to continue to grow this business, which I think has a lot of potential benefits for society. Yeah, no, I think you and I kind of nerd out on the technical details because ultimately what we really want to enable is getting this technology in the hands of hundreds of millions and billions of people. Yeah. And we've really just kind of started that process. We are really early, yeah, yeah, that's the amazing thing. And we're really early, the amazing thing is we're this early, yet the numbers, you know, in terms of, dollar signs anyway is pretty huge so you know when think about the potential there right so uh yeah i, I we just there's some some things some problems we need to solve to to uh, bring the masses on on chain and um yeah and i'm fully convinced we'll get there right we have a lot of smart people in the space that's one thing i've really been impressed by likewise and i mean to that point this kind of being your first kind of public facing appearance to the crypto crowd could you dive a little bit into your background kind of what got you excited about the crypto industry yeah yeah it's been a it's been a, it's been a bit of a long road for me to kind of become fully immersed in it um you know we were talking about this earlier today um i actually got involved in what i would call um decentralized and trustless computing 1.0 um pre-blockchain era kind of peer-to-peer -peer computing um, when Napster came along, I thought that was like the coolest thing in the world. You know, you could go and download music from just random people on the internet and you could chat with them, right? So it was peer-to-peer, -peer, not just, you know, 
network-wise, but person-to-person as well. So there's a community aspect as well. Um, but, you know, there's flaws in those protocols, and, and they tried to fix them, but ultimately there was no proper incentive mechanism. Um, there was no good reason to just leave your software running, right? There was only downsides, you know, the record companies coming in after you or something like that, or using bandwidth that you might have to end up paying for or getting disconnected by your, you know, uh, your cable internet connection, right? So, so the incentive mechanisms weren't there. And that kind of died down for a while, but it was, nevertheless, I found it really inspiring. And so, of course, when the Bitcoin paper came around, I didn't discover it till like um, maybe two years after it was written. But when I read it, I was just blown awake. I'm like, okay, this solving the right problem, right? It you know provides an incentive called mining, in which you can generate new coins, and that can um, incentivize people to run nodes and collect transaction fees, um, and creating just an entirely new form of money. You know, I didn't understand it necessarily from the economic perspective, but I realized pretty quickly that it was solving a very interesting technical problem. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what really got me, I think, started in this space. Um, though by the time that happened, I was working at Google, um, which really doesn't have any interest in that kind of thing, right? So it had been a hobby of mine uh, for some time while I was doing kind of other things. Um, but ultimately, you know, I think the, uh, interest, uh, kept building and, um, I just, I think I also ran out of interesting things to do at Google. Yeah. Uh, and, and so then just decided to jump in the space full time. And, and so I've been at Coinbase for almost two years now. Um, yeah, doing this full time, trying to figure out ways of bringing Coinbase users on chain has kind of been the, been the theme of my work since I've joined. Fascinating. Well, let's just dive into it then on some of the technical fronts. I think the industry as a whole would love to learn a little bit more about your thought process on building base on top of Ethereum, uh, choosing the Optimism tech stack for base. Uh, could you share any color around yeah. uh, some of the thoughts there? Yeah, I'd love to. I mean, it's, uh, you know, naturally, it's a variety of factors that sort of led us where we are. Um, but we really did a pretty, pretty, um, detailed, uh, investigation before we concluded, um, before we made these decisions and how, how we've ended up when we're here. And, and in fact, you know, the, the way I got to know Jesse was, um, both of us were interested in building things on chain getting users on chain. Um, how do we do that? Well, initial thought was maybe we'll just partner, right? Maybe we'll just figure out a chain on which we can, um, build on and, 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 you know, so what's the best thing we can possibly do? So we met with a bunch of different folks, you know, we met with um, various L2s, we met with various, um, you know, alt L1s, I guess you could say. Um, and, you know, incredible talent out there. Um, but ultimately, I think what we boiled it down to was there was a few factors that we really wanted to weigh heavily. One was uh, you know, just utmost um, um, consideration for security, right? Um, uh, really strong team. Um, and a team that we thought we could work with, um, and platform tools, ecosystem community, right? These things all came into play and, and look, Ethereum is, is really dominant along a lot of those dimensions, but it fails on cost, right? But at that time, the L2 vision was starting to play out, promising much lower fees. Um, so that's what we concluded very quickly that, look, we can... Um, jump into this L2 ecosystem, 
um, you know, whether it's through partnering with an existing one or building our own, I think that decision came a little bit later. Um, but with that, that decision to kind of bet on the EVM, e Ethereum specifically, L2s, um, yeah, that was made, you know, about a year, year and a half ago, a little bit before the whole base thing kicked off. So and maybe just diving a little bit deeper into kind of that technical choice, you mentioned kind of security and also the developer ecosystem. I think no doubt uh, Ethereum has amazing developer community, very robust tools uh, for developers. Can you kind of dive a little bit deeper into like the security aspect? What specifically about Ethereum kind of caught your eyes versus uh, other ecosystems? Yeah, well, I mean, some of it's quite simply the Lindy effect, right? It's been around for a long time. It's been battle tested. Um, but we also just got to know a lot of the folks working on Ethereum, and they're just some of the brightest people in the space. They really think through the details. Um, I mean, if you look at things like, you know, EIP-1559, um, how they just, you know, redid the entire fee mechanism in a way that... Um, you know, they had some ideas of how it will work out, uh, and then it basically ended up almost exactly as predicted, right? Definitely smoothed the, uh, the volatility, um, transaction throughput, right? And so just, you, you could just tell the way that they were operating, that they really were thoughtful and thinking through, through carefully, um, when the, in particular with that switch to the, to the merge, right? And so I think that view, when we witnessed that, we were also quite quite impressed. Um, and that even before the merge happened, right, we kind of were kind of seeing the process towards that. Um, yeah, and so you know, just you read lots of Vitalik's writings as well. Uh, the, the the detailed um, writings he's provided on their consensus mechanism and and how it works and why those decisions were made, very clear, very thoughtfully laid out. Yes, there's been a lot of really innovative work in consensus mechanisms. Um, but some of it's not as well tested, battle tested, and, and 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 so you know those gave us just a little bit more concern. It may be that some of those may play out and turn out to be wonderful tools. And uh, but on the other hand, I think if that turns out to be the case, it wouldn't surprise me if uh, Ethereum would eventually adopt those ideas as well. Yeah, it, it does. I think one of the beautiful things about the industry is everybody's kind of looking at each other and being like, all right, what are they doing and yeah. adapting best practices. Yeah, there's so many interesting trade-offs in the space. And I think the other thing, the other uh, aspect of Ethereum that we really liked um, was they really have this commitment to maintain a low barrier to entry, right? They really want to make it to where almost anyone can run a node, right? Because they find that's, they, they, they feel that's incredibly important for decentralization. I like it too. I like, I have, a, you know, a bunch of computers in my water heater closet. My wife thinks I'm nuts. You know, I run like um, uh, Ethereum validator on it. I'm actually running a, uh, a base node because we're 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 doing some work on um, on a Rust version of uh, OP Rust, nice. um, and so we're testing it. You know, I just sync things at home, and and so just any chain that I can run myself, uh, I, I feel better. You know, it feels like okay, this this is decentralized, right? If I can do it on a commodity PC, then a lot of other people can do it as well. And and on the hardware aspect, it has been interesting, kind of different ecosystems really kind of playing around with the hardware aspect yeah. some kind of like ethereum purposely kind of keeping the hardware requirements smaller other ecosystems increasing the hardware requirements do you feel like having hardware requirements low necessarily allows more nodes to run or 
I guess, how important do you feel like the actual cost of the hardware should be in kind of some of these ecosystems? Yeah, it's 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 a fairly nuanced question, actually. Uh, more nuanced than I think most people realize. And interestingly, Vitalik just gave a talk at, uh, I was at the um, Science and Engineering of Consensus workshop, I guess, um, sort of a pre-workshop to Science of Blockchain. And Vitalik gave kind of a remote talk where he, where he, where he touched on some of this stuff, right? Um, talking about scalability and in particular, um, and it's, it's related to this question of hardware requirements. Um, and you, you, cause you can jack up transactions per second with higher hardware, uh, higher quality hardware, for example, there's, there's other ways you can do it as well. Right. I think, um, you know, some people have just taken Ethereum and said, we'll have bigger blocks, right. We'll have shorter block times. Um, but you know, there's secondary external externalities to doing that, that then come into play. And I think they're not as well understood. And the Ethereum folks are very paranoid about that, right? They're very conservative. And, and again, because of our emphasis on security, you know, that resonates with us. Um, so yeah. And so, you know, given that conservativeness, um, given that they're not eager to like crank up block size and so on, that fits very neatly in with, you know, well, you may as well make it work on commodity hardware while you're at it as well. So all these things kind of have really interesting interplays and fit together in, in, in this way and that, you know, kind of defines Ethereum in, in the way it is. You know, pluses and minuses. Uh, the minus is, you know, the TPS is a little bit low. The scaling roadmap is a little bit longer, um, quite a bit longer in some cases. Um, but, you know, I, we, we, we convinced ourselves that the roadmap is sound and, and it'll be able to, to reach the levels that um, we think we'll need for a user base of Coinbase's size. You know, I think, it, I'm rambling a little bit, please feel free to stop no, me. No. Um, that said, you know, I think there'll be places for other blockchains. I'm not a Ethereum maxi by any means. Um, I admire a lot of the work going on in the sort of the second, third gen blockchains, I guess, you know, the Aptoses, the Solanos, the Swedes, and and so on. And, and now some of the hyper-optimized EVMs, I mean, that stuff's super cool too. Um, again, that technology, like you said, people are watching each other. Yeah. Um, pieces of it will be <laughs> interchanged between different parts. But yeah, I think a, a community as a whole, I think we're going to be solving this problem, not just sort of any one team. Yeah, yeah. No, it's... It is fascinating. As you said, I, I think there's numerous different trade-offs for different ecosystems. And I've always been kind of fascinated just watching each of them uh, and kind of what they're optimizing for. It, it is mm -hmm. kind of interesting. But maybe definitely appreciate the additional color and kind of choosing the Ethereum stack. Can you maybe also expand upon why optimism and the optimism yeah. technical stack? Yeah, and, and why an L2, right? Yes. So um, obviously fees on Ethereum L1 right now are, are way too expensive for the average user, certainly the average Coinbase user. Um, so L2 is a natural way of reducing those fees while still remaining in the ecosystem. Um, but in a way that doesn't compromise on certain things, right? We, we could have done the normal thing of, okay, let's just create a uh, Ethereum fork, which again, jacks up the block times or whatever. Um, but, you know, we, we, we didn't want to compromise on kind of that, those security aspects. And, you know, as most of your um, listeners are probably aware, the, the vision of L2s is to be able to scale in a way where you do inherit that security of the base layer. Now, of course, we're not there yet. <laughs> There's a lot of work to do. You know, we have the stage zero, stage one, stage two categorization that Vitalik has laid out. No, we're at stage zero right now. Um, not going to try to pretend otherwise. Um, but, you know, you have to, you know, skate to where the puck is going. We, 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 we looked at the vision. 
we found it was sound. Um, and so then at that point, okay, we bought into the L2 vision. We've been in, bought in the Ethereum L2 scaling vision. Um, what is the right platform to build on at that point? Um, frankly, there's a lot of really good ones. Yeah, this is actually there's a, lot a of options. really different, difficult choice. Um, and, and we went back and forth a few times. Um, but ultimately, we really, we really clicked with the Optimism team. And, and the one thing I think that I really liked that they were doing was that they were focusing on the foundations. Um, a lot of teams were focusing on something very specific, like, you know, Arbitrum is about its fraud proofs. Um, you know, Polygon ZK is really about their ZK and wonderful work on their ZK EVM, right? Um, Optimism was about creating a, 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 a somewhat appropriately modularized platform um, on which, you know, that they've developed into this sort of super chain vision. So we felt we could play in that world kind of as a peer, not really as kind of like a, a you know, second tier customer that, you know, maybe it's a, will be a layer three going into a layer two or something like that. Um, yeah. So I think optimism, um, despite, you know, maybe being a little bit behind on the fraud proof side, um, has an architecture, which we believe will actually leapfrog, um, some of these other chains, and perhaps is, a not too distant future. We'll see some really it, interesting developments going on there though. And is that kind of leapfrog, do you think will be enabled by focusing on the foundation, having those modular components that can eventually be upgraded over time? Yeah, that and just the community aspect as well, right? They've got this public um, uh, goods funding model and, you know, they do these RF, RFPs. They've done these RFPs for um, fault proving development. Um, you know, they've, they've, um, I think they've accepted two of them. One, one of them is from risk zero who just gave a, um, I was at the rust Ethereum um, thing on Saturday and they gave a, a wonderful update on, on the work that they're doing. So, I mean, I think you know, ZK prover is right around, maybe not right around the corner, but it'll be 2024 for sure. There'll be something ready that I think we can deploy on the OP stack. Cause it's got a modular proving architecture, you know, people associate optimism with Broad proofs and optimistic rollups, but frankly, um, you know it's it's far outgrown that 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 um that you know narrow label. So yeah, it is interesting. I guess maybe expanding upon that optimism vision, or maybe the vision that you think will ultimately play out. Do you see optimism or these super chains being hundreds of chains, thousands of chains? Maybe just add some color in in this end state of L 2s how are these different kind of landscapes uh, working out? Or are they yeah. kind of talking with each other? That That's a great question. Um, right now, it's not hundreds of chains, right? Because if you want to do a true L2, you're still posting everything to the L1, yep. which that is your bottleneck, right? Um, and so, but what L2s are giving us now, they're giving us execution sharding and they're giving us state sharding, right? So by putting things on an L2, the L1 is not necessarily have to maintain as much state as it does before. Um, doesn't have to execute as many transactions as it is before, but it still has to store all the data, right? But, you know, there's solutions to that as well. Um, I've been working on with Ethereum Foundation, EIP4844, was involved in some early, early prototyping there. Um, that is a small step in that direction. Um, ultimately, though, what we need is data sharding as well, right? So we've got execution sharding, we've got state sharding effectively with L2s. We do not have data sharding. That is the next step. Um, everyone's heard the term dank sharding by now. Um, that is um, sort of the next um, uh, uh, scalability, I think, breakthrough, whatever you want to call it, where, I mean, the, the big thing about that is now if I'm running a validator, I don't have to download everything, right? I only have to download a fraction um, of this, you know, 
this blob data that is introduced by EIP4844, um, allowing you know greater scalability. And so that's going to get you up to I don't know maybe dozens of chains. I haven't done all the math. Yeah. Um, at least the way um, dank sharding it's currently defined. Um, we can get up to thousands though with alternate data availability layers. Again, compromising someone on security. Um, but by the th by the time we're there, I mean I'm sure there's going to be other breakthroughs, right? Um, yeah, there's so many different dimensions of there, scaling. We can we can get into more of them, right? I, I would love to. So so L2 scaling is, is mostly about horizontal scaling. Yeah. At least I define it as horizontal scaling. There's vertical scaling techniques as well, and I think they can come to play in the Ethereum world. And then there's off-chain scaling, right? This is the the magic of zero knowledge proofs. Um, there's going to be some amazing stuff there as well. So, yeah, yeah. I, I do agree. One thing that you said that caught my mind was really the execution charting and the data sharding. Um, when you refer to execution charting, is that just having multiple different layer twos? Yep, exactly. Okay. exactly. And that's why you want more than one layer two. There shouldn't just be one layer two because then it's going to be executing every transaction. Um, and you know, that's naturally going to be a bottleneck. It's going to mean, you know, if you want to, if you want to play in that world, if you want to download and recreate the chain, it's going to be expensive. Yeah, so there's a lot of benefits to horizontal scaling, right? And the management of state and storage um, and, and syncing and so on. Um, some downsides as well, obviously, right? What if you want to do things across chain? Um, that becomes a lot harder. And, but this comes back to the uh, super chain thing, right? Uh, the super chain um, uh, mission anyways, to make this more seamless interoperability across L2s that do build on that platform. A lot of work to be done there. I'm yeah. not claiming they've solved all those problems yet, though. So, but that's that's the vision. That's the vision. Perfect. And then the second thing that you mentioned was the data sharding. Uh, that will ultimately be implemented with think sharding. Kind of a stopgap to that is 4844. You mentioned yeah. you were kind of a, yeah. working on that as ahead of time or with the Ethereum Foundation. Can you maybe expand on 4844? Yeah, I think that's worth talking about. It's 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 very poorly understood for some reason for what is actually a very simple thing. Maybe not very simple, but it is a fairly simple thing. Um, I think people have maybe gotten the impression that 4844 is the the ultimate scaling solution for Ethereum. It's not, it's a step towards that. It's a small step towards that. Um, what it does is, um, so uh, again, the way L2s work, they have to have data, they have transactions. Those transactions need to be available for anyone to be able to validate the chain, compute the state um, in the way they work now and to make sure it's available at the security of the L1 is they post it to the L1, right? So as long as the L1 exists, that data is there, you can grab it, you can run the transactions, you can prove that it's being done correctly. Um, so what 4844 does is it says that that data doesn't need to be around forever, right? It just needs to be around long enough, um, at least on the L1, to where you can uh, validate um, the, um, the proposals that are written to the L1. Um, this is getting a little technical. I don't think I want to dive down too much there. Um, but the bottom line is, yeah, so it introduces a new data type. So um, uh, batches of transactions right now are written in something called call data which is, is one of the cheaper kinds of data in Ethereum, 16 gas per non-zero byte for those of you who are technically inclined. Um, but uh, it, it's persisted forever. And so naturally, that you don't want to lower that cost of gas because it has you know, a real impact on people who run nodes. Now, blob data is a new kind of data that EIP-484 introduces, literally just raw blobs of bytes. Um, Ethereum L1 doesn't care what they are. In fact, you know, Ethereum has... 
uh, consensus layer and an execution layer. The execution layer doesn't even have to deal with blobs. That is handled entirely by the consensus layer. Execution layer just needs to know their hashes. Um, and so the consensus layer, they, they get these blobs, they collect them, but after some amount of time, they can just throw it away, right? So you can handle that much more cheaply. Um, and so EA pay for it for uh, the, the initial parameterization is very conservative. Um, they're gonna do a maximum six blobs per block. Each blob is 128 kilobytes, um, but a target of three blobs per block. So it'll be about 0.375 kilobytes of extra data availability data, which can be provided basically at almost no additional extra cost because it's so cheap for these consensus clients to maintain. And so, yeah, you get more data availability storage. Yeah. Your L2 costs go down. Well, either your L2 costs go down or you get more transactions on the total sum of L2s, depending on how it works out in the marketplace, right? Yeah. Did that make sense? Is I am sorry. That's that was a lot of words. No, I, I mean I, I think it make I, I I nerd out about all this stuff a lot, so I'm in the details. But maybe for me, I can just rearticulate it for the listeners. Um, ultimately, the data availability is kind of the final bottleneck in scaling these blockchains because the L2s have to post the data uh, route to the L1 to inherit the security. Uh, with 484, you're kind of separating the two data types. One's less persistent than the other. Uh, and then you're increasing the amount of data for specifically kind of L2 data blobs that will ultimately result in cheaper data for L2s to settle to. And it's kind of starting off a little bit conservative, but over time you can expand yeah. uh, the amount of data that the blobs will hold and then this is kind of the first stopgap to ultimately dink charting. Uh, and dink charting, I think it will have uh, 16 megabyte blocks. Uh, you know, I've forgotten the exact numbers for dank sharding, and my guess is they're going to change by the yeah. time it comes along. Because look, when if you read the original 4844 proposal, it was supposed to be 16 blobs maximum of one megabyte each okay. uh, with a target of, of eight, if I remember correctly, right? It was much more aggressive, um, but people became a little more concerned about, like, can the P2P layer handle this? Um, so got dialed back with it. Got, mm. got dialed back to two blobs target for maximum for a little while. And it's still a chance that it will actually go out that way. Yeah. I hope it doesn't. I hope three, I think three, six is perfectly valid. Um, but you know, I think it's a little more vetting still has to be done there. But yeah, I think the goal is just to make sure the P2P layer, um, there's no unanticipated, unanticipated consequences there. And on the peer to peer layer, are you referring to specifically like the amount of bandwidth that individual nodes have? And exactly. if you increase it too much, the nodes won't have enough bandwidth to continue. Precisely, the precisely. Yeah. So, you know, but the reason I think three, six is very conservative is 0.375 megabytes. If you look at, if you had a block full of just L2 call data, that's, uh, you know, about a, a, about a full megabyte. Um, so you're already dealing with this problem somewhat pretty effectively. That's not a huge increase in my opinion. Um, so I think it'll work out, um, but it's good to be conservative. You, you, you can always increase those numbers in the next hard fork, right? And I know Ethereum wants to have a faster hard fork um, you know, cadence. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a little struggle to get it there, um, but yeah, there might be a more you know, narrow, I guess, one where, where, we, where they could do that if it turned out to be a problem. So, like, so right, right now with the, a, 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 the existing demand, we're doing okay. I think you know L two fees are reasonable, at least for you know the, the types of applications we're seeing right now. Um, 
stuff could spike though and that could maybe force a, a more quick reaction right uh, yeah i i'm super fascinated just on the data front i mean as you mentioned l2 is kind of trying to solve that execution component uh then you have kind of the data increases coming on ethereum's base layer with 4844 and then ding sharding can we maybe go a little bit more into the sharding of data on ding sharding and how ultimately you kind of see that playing out in future what that ultimately enables for ethereum down the line yeah i mean i think the the important thing is it simply means that if i run a validator node I don't have to receive and store all that data, right? So I, immediately we can handle much larger amounts of data without you know, my node being in, inundated with all of it and me having to store it and serve all of it. Um, and so I think that's really just the fundamental important part of it. And that's enabled by you know, uh, this, what's called erasure coding. Um, and that was actually a big complexity in 4844 is they wanted to get in an erasure coding scheme um, in that initial version so that it would very more very easily um, uh, be able to migrate into that dang sharding world and so they use something called you know kzg commitments for encoding that blob data um yeah which gets even you know more esoteric cryptography um it, it, it does two things right it allows you to you know do magic kind of commitments to the data and useful in, in zk and so on but it also gives has this erasure coding property where you can split up the data uh, spray it across a bunch of nodes, and then you can prove that that data is available without downloading it. And so that's another really kind of critical aspect of dang sharding. And is that ultimately through data availability sampling, or is that just exactly? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, yeah it, it is fascinating. I think. I mean, as we are kind of setting up to really, I think what I really want to get to the heart to of is kind of the core building blocks of scaling blockchain architecture. Uh, one is the execution side and that's being done horizontally through these layer twos like base. And then also uh, on Ethereum, the increasing amount of data with 4844 for increased data availability and then uh, increase ultimately sharding, which will be the second component to allowing more throughput for Ethereum. And then ultimately, the goal of that is to enable either higher TPS or I always kind of say a bigger sand block for uh, engineers to play in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's interesting, a lot of the layer twos right now um, could potentially crank up throughput considerably, right? Um, especially once the data availability problems are solved a little more. Um, but then again, I think again, these sort of what I call the secondary externalities of data growth come into play. Um, and so that's why I think, uh, if you look at optimism and Arbitrum, they've both been parameterized to give you about roughly two X, the throughput of, of layer one, um, again, pretty conservative. Um, but the, I keep an eye on it see what happens to state growth, make sure the implementations can keep up. Um, and then, yeah, I think we'll have, you know, there's, there's other, um, parts of the vision, you know, stateless Ethereum, for example, or, you know, there's other ideas that, uh, you know, may come into play eventually where you, you know, nodes don't have to maintain everything. They just have to maintain the accounts that, you know, are relevant for the apps that they support and so on. So, so there's a lot of kind of wild stuff like that, that I think are, eventually we're going to have to sort of, um, 
incorporate in order to achieve these, you know, grandiose uh, numbers that, you know, Jesse loves to talk about a million developers and a billion users on chain. Um, yeah, we think it's doable, but there's all, I think all this kind of stuff has to come into play. And, and maybe to that point, I guess, maybe on your estimates, are there any targets that you think we need to get to, whether on like the data availability side, like whether in megabytes or gigabytes, uh, and then is it more so just continuing to add different layer twos um, for in continued or higher amount of execution to take advantage of that increased throughput? Are there numbers kind of in your head that you've been doing uh, to ultimately get to say 100 million users? Yeah, I have not done that detail map. <laughs> yeah. Just a very loose back of the envelope thing. I'm just kind of focusing on, you know, what are the next steps to get us there. Yeah. Um, uh, but I think I think another thing we haven't spoken about yet is there's stop gaps, right? Um, we're talking about a vision where that, um, you know, this scalable Ethereum world is, a, is if everything's a true L2 or it's settled the L1, fully provable and fully challengeable. Not every blockchain needs that level of um, security, right? And so this is where the whole app chain thing comes in, which I'm sure um, you've heard a ton about, right? Um, and, you know, layer threes can provide that kind of app chain thing. And then there's all data build layers, you know, uh, I can layer. I know you've had Sri Ram on, on your podcast before. Um, they're already offering one, is what I understand, um, which you can start tapping right now. And, and through their restaking stuff, it's actually secured by Ethereum, right? Maybe not the full brunt of Ethereum, but a pretty good chunk of it, right? Um, so yeah, I think these kinds of mechanisms will come into play in the, in the scaling roadmap as well. And that's going to be an important part of getting to a billion users for sure. And maybe on that, like different data availabilities or volitions, uh, I guess in Coinbase's or Base's vision, is it kind of continuing to allow flexibility for kind of different settlement layers, whether that's Ethereum or another data availability committee or eigenlayer, uh, just so users have a little bit of more preference for kind of what security they would like or how cheap ultimately they would like their transactions? Yeah, yeah. So I right now we're not pursuing that personally. What we want to do is we want to build base to be this, um, you know, uh, maximally secure chain with reasonable costs. Maybe I wouldn't call it low cost, but at least reasonable costs. And that's kind of our goal right now for base because we want it to be a seamless transition from our uh, centralized exchange into the on-chain world. We don't want there to be a step function decrease in uh, security, for example, when you get there. And we're, we're not, we don't have to solve all the problems. I mean, once you're on-chain, you can move on to one of these other um, you know, you can maybe bridge over to an L3 or an Alt L2 that, 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 you know, does offer maybe even lower prices and higher TPS or whatever else you really need for whatever particular application you're doing. Um, but yeah, we're, we I think what we're probably, again, we're so early. Yeah. Our team is really small, by the way. I don't think people realize, uh, how many people are, are working on the base team. So um, before launch, it was you know maybe half of a half a dozen of us. Um, we've added a few people since then. I think That's we're up impressive. to about a dozen people right now. Um, it, though you know, to give credit, there's a lot of other contributors from around the company that have chipped in, you know, in their spare time and that have kind of been on loan temporarily. So we've gotten a lot of help from others in the company, but the core team has been been pretty pretty tiny. Um, and so, yeah, we we have a bit of, bit more of strategic thinking to do. But this is you know our first priorities are you know, that really um, 
safe environment for our users and, and usability is also an important thing, which we haven't even talked about yet. It's not as interesting technically, <laughs> I guess, um, but making everything work together really nicely. You know, we've got Coinbase wallet, we've got this DApp marketplace and, in Coinbase, um, and yeah, so just giving users options of how they how they can um, use on-chain apps um, in a way that's safe and secure and that doesn't confuse the hell out of them, right? Yeah, <laughs> I I think really simplifying that experience is also key. Just outside of the technical aspects, obviously, we have to technically be able to support the amount of users that we're really looking to get to on. The scale side but we also just have to make it easy and yeah it's not a not an easy problem to solve no i mean like i had a i wanted to like i was at the rust uh, ethereum thing and they had an nft mint on zora right and i, I couldn't get it to work right it's like <laughs> i'm a, you know i've been doing this for years and i couldn't get it to work right so yeah we have a lot of work to do on uh on making these uh, systems a little more reliable and robust yeah. and so on. And it's, it's, sometimes it's not the blockchain. It's just, you know, there was a glitch in wallet or, you know, maybe it didn't know the Zora network. I don't know exactly what happened. I, I filed a bug report. But, yeah, this kind of thing is really common right now. It needs, needs to get a lot better. 100%. In terms of, I would say, another kind of popular discussion within the crypto community around layer twos has really been about kind of single sequencers or having multiple sequencers. Yeah. Can you kind of expand upon the basis team's thoughts around the conversation that's being had today? Yeah. Yeah. So credible decentralization is something we absolutely want to, uh, want to provide. Um, uh, we do have, um, you know, elements of decentralization now, even with a single sequencer, the challenge with a single, single, single sequencer is often misunderstood. Um, Simply having a single sequencer doesn't mean you can do whatever you want, right? We cannot forge transaction signatures. Um, you know, the the optimism um, protocol is defined by signed transactions that are posted to the L1. So we can't post anything fake there, right? But with a single sequencer, you you can do other things that are, you know, we just have to give you our our word that we're gonna, not going to take advantage of. So like, you know, there's this law of change thing. I, I don't know if you saw that came out. I don't even remember this is in there, but one of the things we've... Um, you know, um, promised is that we're not going to do fancy transaction ordering things for MEV. Um, right. You send us a, you send us a, a transaction. We're going to put them in a block. We're going to sort them by priority fee. Um, boom. Right. Um, but when we have a single sequencer, you, you're trusting us to do that. Right. So, so, so the decentralizing sequencer is definitely of interest. Um, though it's, um, you know, we want to make sure the security issues are those decentralization issues are that are a higher priority for us. So validity proofs, um, fraud proofs, um, you know, making sure our uh, upgrade keys are sufficiently decentralized. You know, Coinbase does not hold all the upgrade keys right now. It's between us and optimism. We want a larger party to be able to do that. Um, so things like that are the things we're immediately focusing on. Um, um, but we are talking to decentralized sequencer providers as well and figuring out how we will ultimately leverage that as well. And unfortunately, I missed the decentralized uh, sequencer espresso talk at the uh, at the workshop, which it, um, got shifted in the later session. But um, I'm going to have to go back and watch that video because that looks really interesting. And yeah, and that, I mean, the Stanford blockchain conference, I really believe is kind of one of the highest signal conversations uh that i've been to and so there's um, lots of amazing talks uh but i appreciate you coming here to do the podcast and chat about base i yeah the whole like decentralized sequencer thing is interesting i think there's one conversation around kind of like 
the real-time censorship resistance of the blockchains. Can you maybe expand upon that? Do you feel like base, or not particularly base, but L2s, like where do you feel like the end state is for them? Uh, do you feel like in one sense you're kind of removing consensus and getting a lot of the performance properties by having a SQL sequencer, uh, but then could kind of come into some issues with uh, potentially being less decentralized. How do you view kind of the end state of L2s? Do you think most of them will be decentralized? Do you think they'll be like a single sequencer? Uh, I think it'll be a mix. Um, Again, for a single sequencer, um, I think the biggest challenge right now for like an OP architecture is liveness, right? Mm. If our single sequencer goes offline, the chain grinds to a halt, right? Um, so that's a problem. Um, decentralized sequencers can fix that. There's other ways of fixing that as well, something called permissionless proposals that have been batted around. Um, you know, maybe people will go that route as well. Um, but I think, you know, these companies like Espresso are going to make it really easy to do this decentralized sequencer. So yeah, why not adopt that, right? Um, but does that bring any feedback into the equation? I, I don't know. There's a lot, of, a lot of things to think through there, but we're keeping a very close eye on it. Um, you know, but there's other L2 architectures. I mean, you mentioned censorship, by the way. I'd, I'd love to say a little bit about um, censorship. You can't censor base um, because optimism has forced inclusion from the L1. So, you know, if you ever have, if, if the sequencer is, is um, um, censoring you, which it can do, um, not that we're going to do that, but it could theoretically. Um, you can always force your transactions to the L1, obviously at a higher cost. But at that point, if you're being censored, you're probably just going to send a transaction that gets your money out of there, and you're going to be you know, you'll you'll be on your merry way, right? Um, so that's another thing I think that sometimes people don't understand about centralized sequences. It's not going to lock your money up forever, right? It's it is. I mean, there's a lot of kind of technical nuance. Uh, in all these discussions and really like there's so a variety much. of so much uh, and even even that censorship resist resistance thing, and that doesn't apply to all l2s there's some l2s that post instead of batches of transactions they post state diffs and that makes that's a, that that gives you a trade-off on censorship resistance the forced inclusion becomes a lot harder and as far as i understand it it's not supported right now by those kinds of roll-ups that do that um, the advantage of state diffs, obviously, is there's much less data posted to the L1, so you'll get some lower fees. So yeah, all these all these crazy trade-offs. I mean, it's uh, keeping track of them is just it's 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 challenging. <laughs> it is challenging, and I guess like on that point, do you feel like ultimately the consumers should understand these trade-offs, or do you feel like eventually the industry kind of standardizes on a couple like? Um, key technology stacks, and yeah. those are kind of more commonly understood. Uh, yeah, I mean, just with the general population. yeah, ideally, no, they shouldn't have to worry about that. And that's again why we're so interested in scaling Ethereum in a way that has the fewest compromises possible. Because then you don't have to explain that to users, right? Um, but it's inevitable that you're going to have to make some compromises to achieve the kind of scale we want to make. So it's going to leak through somehow. I'm hoping that wallets can make that is. Um, as seamless as possible, right? And so it's going to be a lot of collaboration, I think, between the protocol designers and between the uh, interface and UI and wallet providers. So, yeah. And maybe, yeah, it it is interesting. There's, on the engineering side, just so many different kind of designs that you could choose. Uh, it is fascinating. But I think one thing that 
the team should really be proud of is just how quickly and how much adoption base has really gotten. Uh, just yeah. looking at some of the metrics, I think it's one of the fastest growing layer twos uh, within all ecosystems. Uh, how does that kind of feel just being on a smaller team, like having yeah, that core great. engineering team? Yeah, it's great. Um, I mean, I think we were optimistic just simply because you know, people see we have a lot of users and they're going to build apps for those users. And if we make it easy for them to get on the base, you know, we want to be agnostic. We don't want to make base to be the only chain we support, right? You know, we're obviously, we have sends and receives to Arbitrum and Optimism and all these other L2s as well. Um, but I think people see that, you know, base is associated Coinbase. Naturally, it might be an easier place for users to onboard. And so I think that's driven a lot of interest in developers. Um, but also I just, you know, kudos to our biz dev team, right? They've, um, struck up partnerships with lots of creators, um, lots of big brands, you know, cool, some really cool NFT mints. And, you know, it's got a really interesting, unique vibe. And that's really been different than a lot of other chains. Um, because I think a lot of other chains that the way they've incentivized usage is through like token airdrops, right? Not airdrops, but just token incentives in general, yep. right? That's not something we're going to do, right? There's not going to be a base token. Sorry. <laughs> I, I don't know how many times I have to tell people that. Everyone uh, continues to ask that. Uh, we're not going to do a base token. You know, ETH is the the, the gas token. We're going to stick with that. We're going to incentivize usage in, in, in other ways. And, and we think the best way to do that, the stickiest way to do that, is through bringing on the best developers and the best applications. And so... That's, that's that's been the strategy. Um, you know, we've had some quick wins with uh, with Frentech. This was somewhat un unanticipated. We didn't really expect that to to, to take off the way it did. Um, yeah, let's just hope uh, we get a, a continued string of those kinds of things and, and momentum continues to grow. So yeah, maybe like expanding on some of Frentech and kind of how it kind of had that virality in. Uh, really getting people, I think, want not only the crypto community, but expanding upon the crypto community. I think that was really the vision behind base and where we want to kind of expand yeah. crypto too, is getting not only crypto people, but kind of mass adoption. And I think uh, this product was really one of the first that I've seen kind of bring outside adoption in. Yeah, it really did a nice job of integrating social um, you know, social kind of social network kind of elements with with crypto, right? Um, uh, I think that was the unique aspect of that system. I think social and and blockchains are a really good match. Um, no one's quite figured out the perfect way to do that. I'm, I, I think Friend Tech has an interesting angle on that. Um, I hope it's sustainable. I'm not convinced yet that it is. Um, but I think, yeah, I think they've got some really interesting ideas. And then if they can keep building on it, keep executing it. You know, they added images recently, which is, I think that was a great move, right? Um, yeah, and, and they, there's a great team behind it. So I'm optimistic that, that they'll, you know, continue to... Um, you know, poke at this problem. Um, another one that I really like is Warpcast. They're moving to the Optimism chain. Um, they've got a really interesting uh, model as well. And but yeah, the idea of being able to own your own data and you know have different ways of, uh, uh, of funding and incentivizing this stuff is is really appealing to me. Yeah, it, I it, I've I've just been impressed by the adoption that Base has gotten for really being live for a short period of time it's it kudos again to the team i think as you guys continue 
to get more adoption, how do you see kind of either uh, base changing over time with either increased compute or uh, 4844? Do you feel like if, I guess, more projects come into the base ecosystem, does that have any uh, effects towards the scalability of it? Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. Our big, we did this pre-mortem, and our biggest fears were no one would use it, or <laughs> too many people would use okay. it, right? And then so the prices would spike, and people were like, oh, base, uh, Coinbase created yet another expensive uh, <laughs> blockchain, right? Um, we seem to be in the sweet spot, <laughs> um, but it could easily go in either in, in every other direction. So yeah, so we've had a strong uh, concern about uh, how we're going to handle scalability, and that's one of the reasons we got involved in EIP four eight four four very early because we saw that way back then as um, you know a key concern. If we dump all our users on chain, and, and clearly bad things are going to happen with prices. Uh, and four eight four four was a, the nearest term solution to at least giving you a little more headroom on that. Um, and so we're going to keep doing that, right? I, I think any scalability initiative for uh, Ethereum, we're going to continue to try and support the best way we can. Um, yeah, and so, yeah, scalability, decentralization, we already talked about that as another area we want to keep um, on pushing towards. And do you feel like that will particularly be around, like, Ethereum just needs more data to uh, continue to kind of support Coinbase's large user base? Or do you also... How do you think about it in terms of like the execution environment uh, and kind of scaling that as well? Yeah. Uh, so there's a guy on my team who's very interested in going beyond this, you know, factor of two throughput of uh, the Ethereum L1. Um, so, you know, if you did have more data availability to, to, to be able to do that, would the system be able to handle it? Um, and I think that's something we need to figure out. Um, I think it could, right? There's sort of some sort of existence proofs with you know Polygon POS and and BSC, though they've not had been without their own problems, right? Um, so uh, yeah, so I think we we were going to be looking at that as well. Um, how, how can we um, scale up the existing implementations? We're working on um, uh, Reth and OP Reth uh, Rust implementation that will you know has, is looking at you know it, it's based on the Aragon data model. Um, and can provide an archival node with, you know, under two terabytes, for example. So these things, you know, all you can you can hack on just you know the details and, <laughs> yep. and improve scalability in that way, right? That solves kind of again the syncing problem, the state management problem, things like that. Um, so yeah, all these kinds of things are, are important. Um, we have to figure out how to best spend our time, though, right? Yeah. <laughs> but that's what I like about the super chain stuff, right? I think as we get more uh, super chains participating in it, it's a broader community contributing to the stack. Um, and working all to sort of together on, on all these problems. Yeah, it, it is fascinating. And I, I'm i super interested just kind of how it plays out. Uh, I'm, I think I very much, I would say, just an advocate for getting more people on chain. And I think it really like, I was very young in the early internet days, but if I could imagine it, I would, really feel like this because when I look at like say Dune Analytics and see really how limited applications are on chain I'm just really want the hands this technology in the hands of hundreds of millions of people and I'm very happy that we're just exploring all the different trade-offs to ultimately get there yeah it's it's interesting you mentioned the early internet days because 
Um, I was around then, and uh, there was a lot of skepticism from some prominent academics that this is never going to scale. Um, obviously, they were very wrong, right? And you hear the same skepticism about blockchains, like, oh, it'll never scale. It's a slow database, right? People are really good at figuring out solutions to scaling. So uh, I do think this is a harder problem than scaling the internet was, but I also think we have much better tools and 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 you know much more sophisticated uh, you know scientific knowledge than we did back then. So I'm I'm pretty confident we'll get there. I think perhaps another debate, kind of within the layer two ecosystem, and maybe not as much so, but kind of the difference between optimistic rollups and uh, like succinct rollups with validity proofs. How are you kind of thinking about them? Uh, I know optimistic is choosing the fraud proofs. Uh, but longer term, are you, how are you guys kind of thinking about it and evaluating? Yeah, actually, it's not true that optimistic op optimism is choosing a fraud proof. Okay. Optimism is developing a fraud proof. Sorry, um, called Canon. Um, but um, again, this is this modular architecture that I had mentioned. Um, they've also funded uh, Risk Zero to develop uh, a zk prover, um, and they're taking a very interesting, different approach. Um, than um, some of the other ZK chains in the space where they're developing a prover. Um, I think they call it a level zero prover. I, I forget what, what, but basically instead of doing a ZK EVM, they've, they're creating a Z, they've created a ZK VM that can prove execution traces um, over risk instruction set, right? So when you can do that, um, as long as you can compile your client down to a risk instruction set, you can prove any computation that that client can do. Um, and this is, by the way, one of the reasons we're doing OP ref, um, because we want to be able to generate um, very con as concise as possible execution traces. And a, a bare metal language like Rust um, will allow you to do that more effectively. And it seems so, like Rust is becoming more and more popular. Yeah, I mean, look, um, you know, Go is a fantastic language, and um, you know, it's my go-to language for most of my development. But when you're doing bare metal work. Um, you know, the previous choices were C and C++. And yeah. Trust me, I've programmed in C++ a lot. I actually kind of like it, <laughs> but it has this fatal flaw of, you know, you know memory uh, errors, right? And Rust has figured out a way to provide that bare, bare layer style programming without that enormous, you know, what has led to, you know, the vast majority of security problems in, in today's software. So, um, yeah, I've been pretty impressed. I've only programming it by the way since um georgios from paradigm um basically you know, set up a meeting with us and said guys we're gonna do this op wrath who's in you know i'm like not sure i have time it's like come on you gotta do it right? <laughs> like i don't really know rust i've wanted to learn it it's like it's not that bad um yeah so i got got involved in that and um yeah now i'm really liking it fascinating no it's uh it's interesting just watching kind of the continued development i think uh, maybe taking a step back, we've talked about a lot, uh, I would say, really about one, starting with Coinbase's uh, thought process around kind of choosing the Ethereum stack uh, and the Ethereum virtual machine, uh, talking about scaling uh, execution with sharding architecture of uh, different layer twos, talking about data availability with 4844, uh, and then ultimately dank sharding. Uh, as you scale the throughput of the base layer on Ethereum, you can also scale execution or have kind of more rollups to take advantage of the additional throughput. 
uh, talked about kind of decentralized sequencers versus kind of centralized sequencers, uh, touched upon fraud versus uh, validity or uh, succinct proofs. We've talked about quite a bit. Is there anything like, I would say maybe that you feel like the industry needs to focus more on or is like a core problem or if you could like have like a team of engineers focus on a specific area to push the industry forward is there anything that you would have them uniquely focus on yeah i've been more and more bullish about zk tech snarks snarks in particular um and not just for roll-ups yes they're very important for roll-ups um but it's it's a pretty it's still a fairly poorly understood technology and i do worry about roll-ups that are secured purely by um zk validity proofs by the way um so th this relies on a property called soundness um which means you shouldn't be able to prove anything that's not true right it's really easy to get that wrong uh, I, anyone who's taken like a initial uh you know introductory course to um you know uh creating these circuits and in, in, in circom for example always has these bugs where uh yes uh, it seems like it's right but there's an input that you didn't think of and it passes the constraints and it goes right through and this is a fatal flaw in validity proofs right if you can post a, a proof that uh, establishes the validity of a invalid state route well you just drain the bridge right so i think there's a lot of work to be done in securing and really proving correctness i think of these circuits behind um, ZK rollups. Um, but beyond that, um, off-chain computation. Um, you can't do everything on a blockchain, right? Um, ZKML is kind of the big buzzword now. And yep. I think it rightfully so. It makes a lot, uh, you know, machine learning uh, models are so powerful and can do so much, but you, you don't want to execute them in a smart contract, um, especially when you have a billion parameters, right? Imagine the amount of gas that's going to take. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, you have a few models that you've sort of certified offline and you, you've, you've committed to uh, and posted those on chain. Um, you can do the computation offline, um, generate the... Um, validity proof for that computation, post it along with the output, and then you know, the chain can use it with a very low cost. So that I think is going to be, um, that's going to evolve in all kinds of crazy directions. Um, but e beyond that, I think you know, ZK Tech will allow us to bootstrap blockchains much more quickly as well. Um, again, this comes back down to the you know, syncing time and state management. And do I really have to download everything or do I, can I download a small proof that says this, this has been computed properly? Yeah, so all, there's just so much stuff there. I wish I understood it better. Yeah. I'm like really <laughs> engrossing myself right now into how all this stuff works. I think I'm starting to get it. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 um, it's involved, yeah. It's a um, deep rabbit hole for sure. Yeah, and so the, but that worries me, right? Because I think there's so few people that understand it. Um, when more people start understanding it, uh, I think that's when you're going to see some of the flaws, I think, that maybe had been swept under the rug a little bit. So, yeah. From a technical standpoint, do you feel like the hardest part about scaling blockchains is like execution or are you worried more about data availability or the storage that comes along with it or even like consensus algorithms? I, I know at uh, Stanford, a lot of the talk is around just the consensus and the different design of consensus. Yeah, so the, one of the themes of, uh, of uh, Vitalik's talk today is consensus is, is not related to scalability. Um, he says there's two, I think he pointed out that um, there's two aspects of scalability that often get conflated. One is TPS uh, and one is latency, and time to finality and things like that. So consensus is about that latter one. Consensus is about um, time to finality for the most part, right? 
because we have blocks, um, even if you have a low, slow consensus algorithm, you can jam a bunch of crap into a block and have extremely high TPS. You can get high, highly scalable blockchains with slow consensus algorithms. Um, so I'm, I'm not. I think I may have forgotten the question, but uh, <laughs> I mean, with I mean, consensus is definitely important. Uh, data availability is important. Execution is important. And then ultimately, we have to store that data. Yeah. Uh, so which which is the most important? Which yeah. one is the They're, they're all important. Um, again, consensus, if you want to have low latency, is, is definitely important. Uh, horizontal scalability of consensus is important as well. A lot of, the, a lot of these PBFT, uh, BFT algorithms don't actually scale that well with lots of validators. Um, yeah. You know, there's some innovations there. And you know, like with avalanche consensus... That, Being probabilistic. That, that are very interesting. Uh, you know, randomness in general tends to make things better. So I'm kind of intrigued by that. Um, it's a little tougher to reason about, but it seems like it has some 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 real promise. Um, so I think there's some advances being made there that could potentially be useful if we really want to continue to uh, allow you know, huge validator sets with with low time to finality. Um, but yeah, I think it's all a problem. I think data availability though is the biggest one, right? It's easy to scale execution; you just create more blockchains. Um, but if you really want to do it with that, uh, you know, security guarantee of the L1, that that data availability problem becomes the the real the real hard part. Um, yeah, and we've never seen a blockchain that has done this kind of selective gossip where you only have to store parts of it. So I think there's going to be a lot of P2P layer changes that we need to, um, that we're going to be um, fighting with for a bit before we get all that stuff to work out. But yeah, I think that is, that is in, in, and I think you've heard that in the, you know, on Twitter as well. There's a lot of talk about data availability. I mean, it's just, it's just a really hard problem to crack. Yeah. It, and it, do you feel like, the concern with cranking up just data availability is how we ultimately store it, or is it more around uh, the requirements if you do crank up the like data availability committee on the node side for how much bandwidth they need? Yeah, it's a exactly it's bandwidth, right? Um, not just storage is cheap, right? But bandwidth is the hard part, and that's why I mentioned the P two P layer and being able to get this get the data to where it needs to go in a way that it's not being broadcasted to everyone, right? So um, that is definitely definitely a challenge. Yeah, it is fascinating. I guess in terms of maybe coming back to wrapping up the podcast, we've been talking for approximately an hour. Uh, I feel like I, I could nerd out for another hour, but kind of coming to an end, I think obviously you and your team have put a tremendous amount of technical work into not only scaling base, but I would say the broader industry. And with that comes more novel applications and uh, really unlocking different things that engineers can build. Uh, and I think that has only been uh, reiterated by the success that you guys have already uh, have gotten. I guess my question being, what things are you uniquely excited for to see built on base? Uh, and what type of applications would you like to see built in the crypto industry? Yeah, I mean, I have to say I love DeFi. I love <laughs> finance. I love um, the idea of, you know, creating a new financial system. That's the obvious thing though, right? Stable app, stable coins already the killer app of blockchains. I mean, having access to stable currencies anywhere in the world. Um, people in the US don't appreciate that, unfortunately, but um, I think it's a really big deal. Um, but we need to get, we need to broaden beyond that. 
um, to, to really, I think, achieve the interest of the masses. And so that's where I, I'm fascinated by friend tech and Warpcast and some of these social applications. Um, but I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of eager to see how it develops. Um, I'm not a product guy, you know, you, you shouldn't be asking me what are the next killer uh, products that are going to be developed on it. But I think you I just think the nature of blockchains and the fact that they do have this permissionless composable model that anyone in the world can just kind of tap whatever contract you put on there to achieve amazing things. Um, yeah, magical stuff is, should happen, right? If we, if we continue providing the right tools and the, um, scalability and, and, and bringing the users to them, right? Yeah. The composability to me was always kind of the magic sauce of blockchain architecture, really breaking down the siloed walls that, kind of our old legacy systems really had. Uh, and then you can kind of like natively interact with things all in a kind of single ecosystem, uh, being able to touch things uh, without those silos was really amazing innovation. Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons I got really interested in DeFi because it really exemplified it, right? You know, we create an AMM, someone creates a, l- a lending pool and flash loans come around and then you can just sort of these things get chained together and just all kinds of crazy, wacky ways. I mean, sometimes with <laughs> de- you know detrimental effects, but the, the fact that this can be done in a way that, you know, without having to ask anyone, right? You just yeah. uh, you you just build it according to the rules of the contract and the protocol, and and, and magic happens. So it, it, it is amazing. Away. Yeah. Uh, well, maybe we can just wrap it up there. Uh, maybe before is there anything that you feel like we should kind of touch upon that we didn't talk about or go any deeper on any technical side? Uh, we've covered a lot of ground. <laughs> uh, nothing nothing immediately comes to mind. So okay. uh, I'm sure probably when we're done, I'll be like, damn, I should have talked about that. One. But, uh, but no. we'll, we'll get some follow-up questions on Twitter, uh, but I'm sure. But Roberto, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate you taking the time uh, from Stanford Blockchain to speak with me and also just share more with the community, I think. Everybody is excited about what you and the base team are building. Uh, and really, I'm just truly appreciative of you sharing your thoughts and uh, helping the industry grow, not only with base, uh, but even with Coinbase and what you guys are pushing for to expand the industry. So yeah, thank you. Absolutely. That's what it's all about, expanding the industry, um, growing growing it for everybody. So, uh, But thanks so much for having me. Glad I had this opportunity as well. It's been a lot of fun. Appreciate it. Thank you.